Hello, my name is Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at Kingston School of Art in London. Today, we're joined by Jasmine Blood, Chartered Architect at Kendall King Scott, a multidisciplinary construction consultancy of architects and building surveyors with offices in several locations from Cornwall to Cardiff. Jasmine is a board director and has worked on a variety of schemes across residential, retail and healthcare, both public and private. And today, we're going to talk through some of the issues essential to understand the running of a project, kind of the early stages of the planet work conversation, if you like. Before we start, so I ask everybody, just kind of tell us where you studied, how you got to where you are now. So uh, I studied at Bath University for my part one, um, and then I, as soon as I finished that, as it was a sandwich course, I went straight on to doing my part two at UWE, and then I returned back to Bath to get chartered. I did pretty much consecutively so it was a pretty standard run into getting chartered so what was wrong with uwe then <laughs> well the part the part three course there's nothing wrong with uwe i just i like the part three course at bath but i was i was okay with doing exams and thinking on my feet so i went to oh, bath so i didn't mean to be accusatory <laughs> and so as a as in your career as an architect has taken off uh, just say a few words about your experience I had an interest in architecture from a fairly young age. I started uh, doing a lot of work experience during my holidays from about the age of 16. I kept doing that, had a link with the practice, went to university, would work holidays. I'd just work every spare moment that I basically had getting that experience. So that sort of happened while I, while I studied and following my studies and completing my uh, part two. Um, unfortunately, I was working for a practice I was made redundant in 2008 when we had obviously a rather frustrating economic recession. And look, look where we are now. So that's where I started at Kendall King Scott. And I had, I've, I've had a really fantastic mentor who is a director. And very early on, I was, I was keen to become an architect, become chartered. And then in terms of management, I wanted to do as much as I possibly could. And to be fair, I hadn't thought of going beyond an associate at the company. That gave some kudos. Also said that I was invested in the company, invested with the company. And and really, that's that's just where my ambition was. But it was my mentor who um, who kept saying, well, what's next? What's next? He didn't put a glass ceiling on my head and just kept going. And suddenly I started thinking, well, maybe I could do a bit more and maybe I could do a little bit more. And I became a project director after I returned from maternity leave. And then a few years later, I became a board director. <laughs> Very good. The rest is history. So, look, so there you are, board director, B-O-A-R-D, not B-O-R-E-D. But can you just, just say what that is? So, I mean, we're a limited company. Um, there are six board directors in the company. I'm the sixth one. And, I was, uh, and I'm, I'm quite a recent board director. Um, but what what does it mean? I mean, you're responsible to the company and for the best and you work in the best interests of that company. We do also have shareholders that work within the company, you know, that are part of the company, that work with the company. And we have, you know, we, we, we have a duty to them as well. What does it mean? It means I can go to jail if I get something wrong, basically. It is, it's a huge responsibility. I'm responsible with the six of us. We're responsible for all of the offices. My responsibility is the architectural department in Bristol. But my liability is limited because we are a limited company. Yeah, and therefore, yeah. it is what is invested in the company, but not my personal, Precisely. Not my personal assets. 
Precisely, because obviously we could all go to prison if we do some something of significant magnitude uh, incorrectly. But uh, there is something about company law which is slightly different. But you're not jointly and severally liable for actions by others in the company. No, I'm not. Okay, good. You can sleep well. And then in terms of what the job entails, give us a little bit of background. I mean, the conversation we're having is kind of partly you and your immediate yes, yes. Um, uh, experiences, but also as a kind of a generic conversation about what these things are involved. So like a, a project director, uh, which is what so, you, you still are, yes? I was a project director for three years, and then I became a board director. And essentially, it's at the moment, because we're, I'm in a bit of a transition period, really, it means that I'm still a project director as well as a board director. And what does a board director do? We're very hands-on. We all get involved in projects. Um, and then as a director, you will have an overview of all of it. And there are some there are some projects which I will be more heavily involved in, particularly because it's either complexity or a speciality or a client and a really important client relationship that I've developed over the years. Um, so in that respect, we do stay quite involved as board directors. And then on the other the other side, it's the, the financials, it's the monitoring of our projects, our fees, our expenditures and various other admin. We're also under, undergoing at the moment a rebranding exercise and a refresh exercise, which is a great, great time for us to talk about us as a practice. But also as directors, you are leaders, therefore you're cultural carriers. And that's really important. Um, so you, there's another layer that's added as a board director. Okay. Well, let's have that conversation then about project management. And again, like I say, it's, it's, it's partly about you specifically, but it's partly also kind of educating the listening public and the students who Indeed. might be tuning in about what you need to do. So in terms of a project director, what's the difference between that and a project manager? So, that, so this is an interesting question because, I mean, we have the term as project directors. Not all companies use that term. But essentially, the way the way I see it is because we're an interdisciplinary company, we do also have project managers, which I feel is actually a slightly different discipline to being a project director. As a project director, really, what we're saying is we kind of run it. We're doing lead consultancy on a project rather than or possibly consultancy lead designer, but rather than being a project manager as such. Now, they are more responsible for organizing the client reporting back to the client being that intermediary between the client but can i jump in because like there's there's two things here one is that normally i think project manager capital p capital m relates to Mm. nec contracts very often so it's it's very much involved in the development world rather than the architectural world isn't it but but small p small m as as a phrase project management is kind of quite commonly used but also you then mentioned project lead and if you look at Mm. the professional services contract that talks about an architect and a project Mm. lead as a mm. distinct other thing. So again, could you not necessarily about your practice, but as a general pointer as to mm. what makes that distinction? The project lead is someone who essentially has an overview over the whole project, deals directly with the client, it helps assist the client in terms of their programming, in terms of cost, in terms of developing the brief. Yes, there are lots of other disciplines and layers but essentially the project manager will do that it may not really have and they may not have a dis- they may not be discipline specific in terms of a background either however within our within the context of our contract a project lead would naturally be an architect and in that sense they will also advise the client on appointments of other consultants 
they will talk about program procurement routes and have an oversight they will manage the other they will manage the other disciplines they will ensure that key milestones are met and okay. key deliverables are also met we might be running ahead of ourselves here it's my mm. fault but let's go back to first principles then in terms of the job right so there you are project directing or whatever phrase we're going to mm-hmm. use for this but you know running a job running a project mm-hmm. but basically when a client rings you up and offers you a job it's like the the first question in a viver in some respects isn't it you know what i mean how do you mm. how do you handle that right how do you work out whether a project is worth taking on again specific to your company but as a general point what would you advise students how they approach it first of all do you know the client have you worked for the client before is it a bit of a cold call that can have some bearing on it secondly what is the project i think that that's the key thing is it something that you or your company have experience in or are able to acquire that experience or intelligence in order to be able to work on a project such as that the other thing that i would be thinking is in terms of complexity of that project and is that something that you're you're able to do with the context of your practice or as an individual and the other item i would be thinking of is time what is the time constraints or what is the aspiration what is the program aspiration from the client and that can have a large bearing on whether you take that project on or not because you need to look within the practice to see what resources you have available you know do you have the resources to fulfill those obligations and can you program that adequately and to your client's requirements i know bang on bang on i always tell students this right that actually a client normally ends up if it's a cold call or not and they'll say mm-hmm. how much is going to cost what's your fee and how long is it going to take i'm being very flippant mm-hmm. but generally that's what they're interested in and you're saying you wouldn't do that you wouldn't like while you're still on the phone do a fag packet calculation and give an indication you walk go away and not. think about it absolutely not basically they want i mean because we are also an interdisciplinary company we have a lot of other uh, we're we're quite lucky in the fact that we have qss and project managers and we're of a size where we have experience of most projects of most projects between a certain value so clients who are they've got a project certainly i would absorb all the information that they have given me i would ask them some pertinent questions as i've already said as to budgetary constraints program and essentially the complexity of it and then really then after that point i would advise you need to go back you need to look at that project you need to look at your resourcing schedules you need to look at your resourcing worksheets as well and look at what the client would like from you when do they want to start the project and along that project what are they appointing you for and on the basis of what so which of the stages are they appointing for me what are the client's key milestones what might the procurement route be and that's a tricky one because you may not necessarily know that at this stage and some procurement routes can have pauses in workflows as well so there's quite a bit quite a juggling act there but those are the considerations i would be going through i would then be looking at the type of project the experience of of the person or the team that would be working on that project you know do we have the right staff to be able to deliver that project and the necessary experience the second thing is um also value value of the project now p you know a lot of us have pi in you know we all have pi insurance but that can limit us on the size of projects we do it can sometimes also limit us on the type of work we can do and that does vary from practice to practice but would that be a, would that be a a deal breaker if you said i mean let's say you've got your 250000 pounds pi which is a 
minimum you have you can have. I'm not saying this is what you have, but if that was the case, and then somebody offered you a job which was of such magnitude that you'd have to up your PI to five hundred thousand, you wouldn't not accept it because it meant you didn't have the insurance. You'd up your insurance, wouldn't you? Possibly, you might do. But the thing is, once you do that, you have to maintain that level of PI certainly for a number of years and. As, as a company of our size, we can we can carry out a number of things, and it may mean that actually the jump to the next one is not as huge for us. However, it is very much a commercial decision on whether we do that and we take that job on. The other thing is, what that tells me is that if I have to up my PI, you know, the project is that project, that's a project of a magnitude that may not be appropriate to our practice. Um, it might be might be exciting, you might want to do it, but you have to, you, you have to think slightly differently. Can we do this? And what is the risk? That's the other challenge. Now, should that project pause, stop, go into planning? Um, as is the nature of the work we do, it's so unpredictable. Should that happen? What does that mean? Have you recruited more people? Are you having to recruit more people? And then what are they all doing if that project suddenly disappears or pauses for a certain amount of time? It's uh, more, It's quite nuanced, isn't it, really? That's very useful. Very, very useful. Good. But then you've got the job. It's a, then a question really of monitoring this to the nth degree, isn't it? That you'd really want to look at that cost, time, fee criteria and whether you're spending too much time on it or whatever. How, how do you go about doing yeah. it? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So um, most practices and best practice is to have a system where you can monitor the time spent. So this would be in the form of timesheets where the staff allocate the number of hours that they've been working on per reaver stage and that's how we set it up and that would be best practice if that's what your appointment is based on so you would record the time that you have spent on each stage on the project and depending on the scale of practice you are for a sole practitioner you may review it more frequently and um, if you're more of a medium-sized practice small medium even larger you would be looking at things on a monthly basis you will be looking at time spent on a monthly basis against the fee expenditure and Best practice, ideally, would be to look at your look at your program, look at your resourcing, and then look at what your fee expenditure is likely to be, and you project that fee. You then review that on a month by month basis to see if you are hitting either key program milestones or where you expect it to be after month one within that project. And then you look at the time and the time spent. It's also a way of checking. So when you are then seeing your client, which can either be by stage basis or monthly, I would advise um, that actually monthly is much better. Some clients, um, depending on the scale of job and the jobs that we generally undertake, being a medium-sized practice, we would do it monthly and we'd set that out with the client. They know what to expect. Sometimes we're able to, at certain stages, give specific drawdowns or you know, certain specific milestones. Um, however, there is a lot of fluidity in in architecture, uh, whether we like it or not, and whether it's of our own doing or not. So in terms of you advising the client in advance about what the first fee drawdowns are likely to be, are you working yeah. on percentage basis or are you working on reasonable, accurate assessments about the time that will be taken? We do both. I will say it's going to take us three months to do planning. Here's the fee. You'll be billed month one, month two, month three, so that they are aware of what to expect. As long as the trajectory follows that and there's no hiccups in between, that's what we would do. 
if there is some sort of prolongation for extenuating circumstances or what have you, we would relook at it. We simply, you know, we wouldn't bill our client more than the work we've actually done. Yeah, sure. There's been a whole session of people being working from home and then there's working, you know, coming back to working in practice. And I think I would say it's pretty, pretty obvious as to who's working and what they're doing. And also just in terms of the oversight you have and the structure within your company, that should be reasonably obvious. But we do also have time short timesheet reporting. So we get every fortnightly, I'll get a report that says who's been working on what. But on the flip side, there'll be people that could be working extra and out of hours and not booking that time either that's not right either because that causes other problems so when you're looking at a project they're not booking the real hours that they are doing on that project you when you look at your fee to time to cost it could you could seem that you're doing you're doing very well in practice you're not because you're not you're not accounting for all the extra hours the members of staff could be doing so you know, the, the key thing is that you've got to get that data and that data's got to be as accurate as possible. And, you know, as you said, if you're drinking tea for half the day, that's fine. Most people will know that you're doing that. Um, and if the and if work is quiet, it's quiet. Right. OK. So more broadly, then, have you ever had a situation where a client uh, has asked you to employ a consultant directly? Or what would you say to somebody uh, where, that's, Indeed. where that's occurring? Indeed. Um, it is not... It's not something that we we like to do necessarily, um, but also in terms of best practice, I would always suggest that you have the client appoint the subconsultant directly, rather than you appointing the subconsultant on the client's behalf. There are instances where that's not possible for what have whatever reason. It, it may also be that in order to win a project. Um, you have to provide architect, let's say, for example, architecture and landscaping. However, as a practice, we don't do we don't do in-house landscaping. I thought every architect thought they could do landscaping. Unfortunately, I fall a little bit into that category, but that's just because I love I love, I love gardening and I love landscapes. But but to the level that is required for planning and actually for clients, you know, it goes beyond. You know, it goes beyond a certain level. So, for example, so if, if we got to apply for a project, you know, coming back to subconsultancy, and actually in order to win that project, I've got to give a cost for architecture and landscaping. That may be an instance where you need to appoint a subconsultant. And in that instance, and we have, we do do that, as well as other practices do that, you have to know that subconsultant very well. You, and I would recommend that you've worked with them before, you know the experience, you have a good relationship with them, and you do also have a subconsultant agreement with them. But I would also recommend that the client has a collateral war- warranty from that subconsultant. Now, the other point about subconsultancy is I've, I, me- I mentioned landscaping as an example, but generally problems, issues that do occur could, are more likely to be from engineering structures, MA, potentially things that are more of that level and at that point i would not want to you'd want, definitely want the client to have a some have a collateral warranty but i def, i wouldn't be entering into a subconsultancy agreement with a consultant that i didn't know and is of a and something actually that my pi insurers would not allow me to do either so that's another element as well yeah yeah in terms of uh, design responsibility metrics or matrices which uh, oh, yeah. you hear a lot about these days um, yeah. Again, do you do you follow these patterns? Do you get that? No. Have other ways of doing it? No. In terms of managing a project, 
we we need to understand everyone's scope of services and therefore where do the responsibilities lie yes best practice is to have is to have a matrix um so that it's very clear as to who is responsible for what you can use those as design responsibility matrices in a in various ways um i what i would say is that i find that contractors are much better at producing those than architects are really Whereas I've worked with a number of project managers and I don't think any of them have given me a design responsibility matrix. I think it's assumed that uh, the, everyone knows what, I mean, to be fair, everybody knows what everyone's scope of services are. We have regular meetings, regular discussions. So things generally don't fall through the net. And perhaps that's why detailed design responsibility matrix at the start of a project are not necessarily done. So. As I said, you'd have you may have smaller ones, so or more specific ones like your planning tracker, for example, or for example, Briam. Briam is another one. There's, that's another good example of responsibility matrices where there is more than one, and there's a lot of overlap. Um, and in my experience, that from the early stages, certainly pretender, that's that's where it that's where it happens. And even project managers that I've worked with don't don't produce these large design responsibility matrices um, yeah. and i've never i've never found it a problem i've never found it a problem i suppose keeping track of decision making and, yeah. and you've mentioned that you know you talk about early in the job and you talk about the number yeah. of people working on the project and making sure the designs yeah. are followed through once you then start moving up especially if you're in a multidisciplinary practice like yourself yeah. then it's kind of very and, and, and you know people start to take initiatives for themselves how do you keep track of like the initial theme you have regular design team meetings or whatever it is or how do you have so, um, absolutely i mean there are there are a number of processes i mean and we are not a you know it, it really does depend on the scale of company and the type of company um you are and i think we we are very lucky um and for us it's quite easy because we have such good staff rent retention and so we have a lot of continuity right the way through projects now even though we have that continuity that doesn't mean we uh, sort of are more comfortable than others we still follow processes that i would expect other practices to be following as well so right from the beginning what that does mean is that at each stage best practice whether your client asks for it or not is to produce a design is to produce a report you know a stage one stage two report normally i find that they're done at stage two, but the bones of the report have begun at stage zero to one, depending on how much of a brief the client already has developed. Now, those mark very good checkpoints because it shows those reports are a moment in time. So they tell you exactly what's been what's been agreed, what's been discussed, what's been the direction. And you have a number of headings and those develop and you add to that as the report goes on. That's part of the kind of reporting process where all members of design teams are involved in so that's how a project should be run and that's what should be provided and that's i mean to be fair the riba plan plan of work do do you know do state that that's best practice the other thing that we also do within our systems is that we do various things such as we have a qa process where we have to write down you know all the details of a client what is their brief then has the brief changed and you follow you follow that and you keep that up to date you may review it on a monthly basis or every time that there has been a change you will also update that information. And then there's a very clear record. We will also undertake design reviews, showing that we are following 
a QA process that is giving the you know giving the client a good piece of work alongside the various the various stage reports we would do. And those stage reports they don't always need to be fancy. If the client doesn't want one or doesn't necessarily need one, it doesn't have to be a work of art. It, you know, it can be a piece of A4 paper, but it's the point is you've got the key headings down. What is the brief? Is there you know for example that could be a schedule of areas, and therefore that is very easy to then follow through it's a lie and, I, and what I would say is best practices are live documents because you are then adding to it as you go through so should you have new team members come in it's very easy for them to kind of look through and go right to the beginning and get a real understanding of that client and clients do look to see what quality assurances we have you know yeah that, well that's part of your marketing isn't it so I've written down here that um, we've reached the end of work stage two. I mean, we haven't even done that, to be perfectly frank. Um, and there's this kind of conversation about milestones and, uh, you know, how, mm. you, how you focus on key milestones. Is it feasible that I ask you this question, that you give me some key milestones beyond work stage two that you think are important for, you know, project managers yeah. or directors to, to really kind of keep keep a handle on in terms of managing a project? Absolutely. So in terms of managing a project, a key milestone is planning. Stage three. And then the other key milestones that are really important is tender, tender issue, then tender return. Those are the key ones that I would say. I mean, if you don't get planning, that's the end of that one. That's the end of that one, essentially. <laughs> Just uh, as an insight, we're getting, um, mm. you know, uh, local reporting here. So what's this? What's the state of play with uh, planning and timescales in, in the region where oh. you are? It's pretty shocking, and I, I I can't say, but I did see, I did see some statistics, and unfortunately, they were pretty terrible for Bristol and for the Bristol area. I would say that for most local authorities, it's a challenge, and I think this is one of the biggest issues to for us as our, you know, in architectural practice. Very difficult to resource manage, and cash flow when you have planning, which is. I would I would say it's coming to the point of unpredictability. You can do a pre-application, go through all the processes, de-risk it as much as possible. But in my experience, there's all sorts of things there ready to trip it up or pause it or prolong it. Now, there's also the resourcing of local authorities and the challenges they have because they're under-resourced and therefore they have their own challenges. And so trying to meet any kind of planning timescale is a challenge and I'm sympathetic to them because of that but obviously it causes us um, huge issues so getting an approval is a key key milestone because that enables the project to continue and that project can be in planning for almost a year-long yeah. planning battle. Yeah do you think design and build helps the planning process or is no consequence? Uh, sorry, two-stage uh, DMP. That—that's really bulking up the price, isn't it? I mean, or you, the contingency element of uncertainty that comes with it. It does, and I don't really see. I'm yet to see the benefits of two-stage DMB to single-stage DMB. Yes, you potentially can have some market-tested rates quite early on. Um, However, if you employ a quantity surveyor, a good quantity, quantity surveyor, and we have those in-house, and because we do so many projects, we generally do have very you know, good knowledge of rates at yeah. that point in time. So I, 
I, would, I, the, I would argue I don't see the benefit, really. Yeah, and given the fact that rates are berserk at the moment, uh, it's, uh, there is very little well, to be gained, doesn't it? Well, I agree. Even even so, even more, there's much less to be gained nowadays um, in terms of two stage. And we see, uh, and we also see out there in the markets that contractors are not that interested in two stage. There's a lot of investment up front mm-hmm. um, from contractors as well, and they're not they're not always keen on that. They'd rather have a better de- a better design scheme that they can price properly. No, I agree. So, look, uh, since we're talking about the state of the world, state of the profession, <laughs> coming back to architects rather than contractors necessarily, what do you what do you think about? Again, this is a maybe maybe overly political. So, rein yourself in if you feel that you have to. <laughs> but there's a push for more competency within architecture, and mm-hmm. I find so I'm going to put my my own neck on the line. I'm finding yep. fewer and fewer people really know with certainty what the regulations are these days, uh, and actually what what the, let alone what the future holds. So competency seems to have actually led to more confusion within the architectural profession than what was it. What, it's like an unintended consequence of a push mm. for certainty has actually led to people being more uncertain. What's what's mm. your thoughts about what's what's happening with the profession? We're talking now in February for the listeners, February twenty twenty three. So yes, that I mean that is interesting, and I think it is a big topic, a big topic. But when you come back to architects and their competency, I think. I think the thing is to really drill down what elements, you know, nobody expects an architect to be an ecologist or, you know, not an arboriculturalist or an, you know, a mechanical and electrical engineer. But in terms of designing a building, that's what we're talking about here. And I think that question of competency does come around the whole fire safety issue. And mm-hmm. I feel that actually architects have been because of what has happened with Glenfell, and then therefore, and then following on from that, what PI insurers are doing, I feel like they are dictating that element of competency. They're making, I feel like they're making architects question whether they have the ability and the knowledge to do it. I think that's just led to fear. So one, your PI insurers won't let you do um, certain types of work that's in relation to fire and therefore architects will say well we always need a fire engineer and that's what's been dictated to them by their PI insurers but what that does is it kind of breeds that kind of lack of competency because the younger architects if they're being told no no no, you can't do that you need a fire engineer it is going to affect that because the first answer would be I'll go and get a fire engineer rather than why don't I open up part B of the building regulations and look at my floor plan and look at that and double check that we are in compliance with part yeah, B. Yeah. And that's the missing link. I absolutely agree. Uh, sorry if I dragged you into a, a strange corner of the conversation there. but I, Oh, I no, think I'm, hap- I'm, I'm happy to talk about this one, Austin, because I'm quite passionate about this one in particular. And I think even if you do have a fire engineer, if there's competency and then there's complacency as well, I think, Austin. And if you have a fire engineer on board, don't immediately assume that they know everything and they're going to get it right. Yes, they, they know how to do the calculations, they know the legislation, but you will probably, as an architect, you'll probably know the building and the overall design potentially better than them. And I say potentially because there are very good fire engineers there that are involved right from the beginning and go right through the project and that's fantastic. Sometimes they come on later, and that's where 
we can't get complacent. And I, from my own personal experience, I have questioned fire engines and I have had them look at their reports again. And sometimes it's led to them being revised. Competency and complacency and whatever there is, what I would say is for all young architects, it's be curious. Don't just take everything for basin. Be curious, question things. I agree with you. The fact that, you know, the first response of a young architect or a part three or a part two architect is, is reach for the consultant. And, and I always, it's always interesting that you, you have to remind students sometimes that actually that's a quite a hefty cost to the client. You're just imposing for the basis of a decision that maybe you ought to be able to take yourself. And the second thing is, is that as you're pointing out, risk aversion is something which has colored the entire mm. profession. So you're tending to find now, I'm finding at the very least that sometimes fire engineers are actually more cautious than a local authority building yes. inspector, fire engineer. You know, so um, it, yes. ne- it doesn't necessarily compute that you, just because they're private sector that they're, they're more imaginative because they're they're wary about their own uh, insurance cover. But the final thing is, you may have covered because you gave a very nice um, uh, mantra at the end there about what architects should do about their uh, lack of caution. My final question was. Any advice for young architects yeah. <laughs> on the merits of, of kind of practice project management, small P, small M project management, and, and what they have to do to get yeah. there? Would you recommend it as a direction for people? But, but what should well, they know? So as an architect, you know, you do have the ability to manage a project. The point is, I think the key point is knowing, can you manage that project? You can manage a project, but it's the appropriateness of a project. There are some projects that are just you know, are very complex and require additional assistance. But as an architect, you can manage a project, you can manage an extension, you can manage a medium-sized um, build, medium-sized building. And architects always have done. We have generally been lead consultants. And then when it comes to managing projects, absolutely. And I think, I think all architects have that ability because if you can do the other two, you can manage a project. You know, you can manage a project. I mean, what are the additional things that you need to be able to manage a project? You need to be organised. You need to be able to draw a programme. And you need to understand costs. Some of those things, but what I would say to young architects is that the ability to do that and do that well can take time and experience. That doesn't mean you can't do it. So even if you're doing it as a young architect, be curious, ask the questions, ask everybody around you. And my one piece of advice is I don't think we should separate for certain things. I don't think we need to separate this project management from being an architect um, in, mo- in, in most instances. But the key piece of advice is don't be complacent. No matter who you have around you, don't think that they know, they, they have the final answer or they know it all, you know. Um, yeah. Very good, very good. Well, on that high note, of uh, homespun philosophy. I think that's a re- really good place to start. There's, there's a huge number of other questions I could probably go into with you, but uh, I've taken enough of your time, Jasmine. Thank you very much indeed. Really, oh. really interesting, very informative. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, that was Jasmine Blood, Chartered Architect at Kendall King Scott. You can find more about her and the company on kendallkingscott.co.uk. That's K E N D A L K I N G. S-C-O-T-T, KendallKingScott.co.uk. Please tune in to the Professional Practice Podcast and listen to our archive on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Austin Williams. Thanks for listening. Until the next time.